Welcome, guys. Welcome to RUF. No matter where you find yourself tonight, no matter what you've done, no matter what you believe, we want you to feel welcome. I always love meeting new people in the spring at large group because oftentimes um, I remember in college just feeling uh, the energy to hit the reset button spiritually um, and socially in just all kinds of ways in the spring. We just get in sort of a rut in the fall. And so I don't know how often you came in the fall, but a lot of you are here kind of in a new kind of rhythm in the spring. So it's good to see you. Um, My name's Matt. RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and we're one of the many campus ministries walking alongside you at Wofford Wofford College trying to help you grow in your faith. We are bound by the reality that God loves us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And sinking our teeth in that reality, the gospel of grace, propels us to love God and to love others and to love Wofford College. We are continuing in this Genesis series. Last week, we were still in Genesis 3, but we finished Genesis 3. Big deal. Tonight, we're in chapter 4. Um, <clears throat> it's getting dark, y'all. And, uh, you know, last week, with just, it was so light um, last week, right? So now, we are going to get really encouraging and do Cain and Abel and talk about exclusion. Um, I promise, just uh, uh, buckle your seatbelts. It will get encouraging at the end, okay? But we're going to talk about exclusion And it's important that we're in Genesis because Genesis, as we've said every week, is season one, episode one of the biblical storyline of God through Jesus Christ ridding the world of all sin and all death to make all things new. So we've seen the first word on sin and grace. And tonight we're doing the first word on exclusion. Exclusion is not something that's just out there in the world like cancel culture. Like all this chatter about Will Smith, if it's taught us anything, it's that cancel culture is real. It is not a fantasy. And there's debates on like, how do you talk about Will Smith? Should we listen to his music? Big Willie style. Should we remember the album? Yes, you should watch it or listen to it. And Fresh Prince. Should we even watch Fresh Prince anymore? There's all this debate that's surrounding cancel culture. It's also here. We exclude others because the human heart actually is prone not just to wander away from our shepherd and not to love God, but also not to love neighbor. We actually go further than not loving our neighbors. We exclude our neighbors. And we feel this on campus. So this is Greek and non-Greek, Southern and not Southern, Christian or not Christian. All over the place on this campus, here's the great irony. We are so deeply afraid of being excluded, and yet we are so profoundly skilled at excluding others. So this is not an out there in the world, cancel culture, Will Smith stuff. This is here, and this is in here. And that's what we're going to see. And you have the game plan in front of you. We're going to do two things, the roots of exclusion and the hope of embrace. The roots of exclusion and the hope of embrace. Let's do the first one. Here's the first root. Here's what we see. The first root of exclusion is when your identity is threatened. When your identity is threatened, we exclude. That's what we see in the story. Look at verse one again. Eve conceived and bore Cain and said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Abel is born and Eve says nothing. Eve shows everyone who her favorite son is. And we need to understand some of this backstory to understand why did Cain 
gets so upset in this story? Why did he kill his brother? And here's what we learn. Their names mean something. Did you notice this? Cain means productive, fruitful, and successful. Hebrew literature, names are everything. That's Cain. Abel's name means worthless and a nobody. Here's what we see with their names and what, how the story plays out. For the first time in his life, Cain is the golden child and Abel is the forgotten one. That's what we see in the story. Then this awful day comes when God asks for sacrifices. He asks for sacrifices from, from both of the brothers. But here's what we learn. God chose Abel instead of Cain. Look at verse 4. God had regard for Abel and his sacrifice and not for Cain. And this undoes Cain. It shatters him. And what we read in verse 5, his face fell. It's like a goofy Hebrew way of saying he's very angry. Why is he so upset? Here's why he's upset. This, this Yale professor on this text uh, puts it this way. It was so helpful. Cain's identity was constructed from the start in relation to his brother, Abel. He was great in relation to Abel's nothingness. So when God pronounced Abel better, Cain could A, either readjust his identity or B, eliminate Abel. When your identity is threatened, something has to be done about it. We long for justice. Someone's got to go. When your identity is threatened, we exclude. Now, you might be thinking, I would never exclude anyone. I love everyone on this campus, no matter who they are, what they believe, what they've done. I want them to feel welcome in RUF, of course, but welcome at Wofford College. Welcome in our country Welcome in my dorm room. Welcome in my whatever. And yet we are so addictively and profoundly skilled at excluding others. We're kidding ourselves ourselves if we think we would never exclude others. The same commentator from the, the Yale professor on this passage says we exclude others in a few ways. Three ways. First is elimination. We just kill them literally like Cain. Second is assimilation. Here's what we mean by assimilation. We let people live and in our lives, but we demand that they assimilate to our standards. If they become like us, if they talk like me and dress like me, and if they join my group, then I will accept them. Then I will include them. If they do not assimilate, canceled. Elimination, assimilation, and then abandonment. We exclude others by abandoning them, just getting as far away from them as possible for whatever reason. Okay, so when our identity is threatened, we exclude. Think about your life for a second. Think about your GPA, for example. If your identity is rooted and it goes up and down based on how your GPA is, then someone who scores higher on an exam is a threat to you. If your identity is in your status and your image or even just being attractive, then attractive and pretty people are a threat to you. If you are trying to do upward mobility and just keep resume building and you're trying to get this and that internship or get into this or that grad school and your roommate got into the grad school and you didn't get in, 
they're a threat. When your identity is threatened, you exclude others. Now, you might not cancel them outwardly, but everything in us is canceling them. It's excluding them. Okay? The second route that we see is not, it's not just um, identity being threatened. It's also just sin. Do you notice this language in verse 7? Sin is crouching at the door. Is that not creepy to read? It should be. It's, crou- it's hidden. It's subtle. Cain's killing his brother is a direct result of this sneaky, subtle, crouching thing called sin that's a parasite that comes in and doesn't belong in God's good world, and it's also a power that spreads around, and it results in blood. That's what we see. Alex Watlington, another campus minister, says this. I I love this. It's so helpful. Talking about children's Bibles on this story. If you look at children's Bibles, often it depicts Cain as this, like, incredible hulk and Abel as this frail, friendly, Spider-Man-looking guy. But that's not the passage. In the passage, it's not that Cain is the hulk. The hulk is sin. That's subtle and yet powerful and spreads like wildfire, and it's hiding inside of him. But here's the other problem with sin. It's not just powerful. Again, it's, it's this hidden thing. Sin is sneaky like the problem with my semester is always my roommate's fault. It's never my fault. The problem with the semester is always someone else's deal, not ever taking responsibility for my actions, my words. Sin is sneaky like, sure, me and my girlfriend sleep over and mess around all the time, but we're not having sex. Sneaky, subtle, might sound polished, powerful, crouching. Now, one thing that we need to see about this, not just that it's sneaky and it has a power over us, but it goes towards blood. Abel's blood is actually, look at this. There's, a, there's hope of embrace. We're moving to the second one. Look in verse 10. God says to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. In other words, y'all, hope for the excluded, hope for those who exclude others is actually with justice. When someone abandons us, when someone bullies us, when those we love abandon us and leave us, we long for justice. In Ukraine right now, we long for justice. We do. And in the biblical story, if there's injustice, there's blood. If there's blood, there's injustice. And because sin and injustice does not belong in Genesis 1 and 2, it is not how God made the world. And God doesn't let sin go unpunished. He doesn't turn a blind eye. And that's actually good news, and we're going to get there in a second. But there must be blood. There must be atonement. And all of the complicated stuff in the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus and Exodus, about the Old Testament sacrificial system, where there are animals getting killed all the time, and all these ceremonial cleansings laws, it's all about unjust actions sin and we're not going to let a, like God's not turning a, a blind eye he's got to punish sin there has to be atonement but what we read in the old testament painstakingly clear 
is that no lamb, no goat, no cleansing ritual can do the job. There has to be another sacrifice, and it is the sacrifice that we talked about last week, the promise of another death of someone else's blood. And that event is Jesus' resurrection and his cross, what we just celebrated this past weekend. I want you to see this. My friend Jordan puts it this way. What did Abel's blood say? Abel's blood was crying out for justice. That's always the cry of those who have been excluded, eliminated, abandoned, ignored, left behind. Justice. We want something to be done, but it's got to be someone's blood, and it has to be the blood of Jesus. What can wash away our sins? There's a list of things, and you just pick what you want. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. At that future moment on the cross, my friend says, justice and mercy kissed. Sin is punished. Blood is shed. It's not our blood. It's not Abel's. It's Jesus's. Even though he's innocent like Abel, he's punished and his blood is shed so that justice can be done. But through this justice comes mercy, comes embrace. Because Jesus' blood is spilled, we live. We are not eliminated. We are not canceled. And so we don't have to eliminate and cancel others. That's why in the book of Hebrews, y'all, Hebrews is all about how Jesus, with his cross and resurrection, fulfills all the Old Testament sacrificial and ceremonial cleansing laws. And here's what he says, Hebrews 12, 24. Listen to this. He was thinking about Cain and Abel when he saw Jesus. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, sprinkled blood, that's a better word than the blood of Abel. Why is Jesus's blood better than Abel's? Because with Jesus's blood, you have justice and mercy. With Abel's blood, with a goat's blood, it's just justice and it's not living. You have justice and mercy with Jesus's blood. Prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus came, said this about Jesus's work. His appearance was so marred beyond beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of children. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from men who would hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The hope of embrace is the cross. The hope of embrace is the cross. Because at the cross, we don't just get blood and gore and atonement. We get embrace. It was for love. It was for restored relationship. Not exclusion, inclusion, embrace. Which is the life that we were supposed to live. It's the life that Adam and Eve experienced in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Community of love in Genesis 1 and 2. That was broken. Sin has alienated us from God and one another. And the cross reconciles us back to God. It's, it's, a, it's a work of embrace. All right. Let's land the plane with some applications. I want you all to, if you're the note-taking type, here's what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take our time a little bit with this. It's so funny, whenever I say land the plane, it means like 20 more minutes. I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> someone made a joke on, uh, about me. I deserved it uh, a few weeks ago. 
landing the plane does not exist with my sermons. We'll try. I want us to think about Jesus and the excluded, Jesus and those who do the excluding. And then I want to just suggest that the gospel of grace frees you to embrace everybody. Jesus and the excluded, Jesus and those who exclude others. And then the gospel of grace means we can free, we can, if we're free to embrace everybody. Let's do the first one. Jesus and the excluded. I just want you to see there's, there's a story that I love so much that we did not get to do last semester with Jesus um, in these gospel passages, Christ for us. But there's a man who was ill, who was an invalid at a pool. In John chapter 5, you can go read this story. All these handicapped folks and these social and physical and moral outcasts hung out at this pool in Bethesda. Jesus hears about this man, and he makes a beeline right to this pool. Think of like a homeless camp under a bridge. Like any part of town that's off limits and there are all these like social and religious and racial divides, Jesus always wants to break those boundaries and it's always for embrace, always. And he goes right for this man who is sick and couldn't walk for 30 years, for 30 years. You should go read the story. It's in John chapter five. And I'm just using that as an example. And we could do this with Levi who goes to Matthew, who, who becomes Matthew, who is a tax collector scoundrel. We could do this with the Samaritan woman at the well that we talk about a lot, who's essentially a prostitute, goes right for her. Jesus has no time for our boundaries. And anytime we put walls up and boundaries, he's going to go right through them to embrace somebody. He actually did that with you. And the barrier actually was sin, and he dealt with it. It's what we celebrated. So I want you to see, if you, if If someone is excluded in the biblical story, you can just go ahead and predict. If you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is going right for them. It is a theme. Not just a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John theme. It's how he deals with you. Now, I I want to give you fresh eyes for how Jesus talks, who he talks to, who he embraces, outcasts every time. Now, I want you to just... Some of you have felt excluded your entire life. This semester and this year has been hard for a lot of y'all because you have felt excluded and because many of you have been excluded because all those barriers that I mentioned, Greek, non-Greek, Southern, not Southern, whatever, exist because you talk to me about them. And these barriers have resulted in you feeling not at home in this place and not at home with God. It actually distorts the way that we relate to God because the way that people treat us, those who we love abandon us, those who should be looking out for us bully us, and so we have a hard time experiencing God as welcoming and accessible. Of course we do. I just want to tell you this very, very, very slowly and simply. Jesus died for you to embrace you. That's it. Jesus died for you to embrace you. This old, um, this old monk, Bernard of Clairvaux, it's really his name, has a collection of sermons that I'm reading right now on the Song of Songs. And he, he, in one of his prayers, he calls Jesus 
my soul's bridegroom. My soul's bridegroom. In other words, one of the main images of the New Testament that describes Jesus and the church is husband and wife. Embrace. The soul's bridegroom. Jesus died for you to embrace you. Now, let's look at Jesus and those who exclude. Look at the older brother. Remember the prodigal son parable? I always think of Dwight Schrute when I read the prodigal son and focus on the older brother, and here's why. When you have this, when you develop this muscle memory, because that's how it works, powers and repetition of excluding others with your words, with your actions, it's actually gross to other people. If you think of the older brother in the prodigal son parable, he's so pissed off about the younger brother getting the party. He leaves the party. And in excluding everyone else, not just the younger brother, the father and everyone else who wants to celebrate his younger brother, what ends up happening to him? He's alone. Who would want to party with this guy, right? Dwight Schrute is so utterly fixated on canceling everybody else that doesn't measure up to his standards. And what ends up happening, with an exception of Pam and and obviously Angela, um, he is alone. Who wants to hang out with Dwight? It's a great example of what pharisaical heart stuff and word stuff does. It's gross. No one wants to be around it. So I think this passage actually serves as an appropriate spiritual warning to us. Who are we allergic to? And are we keeping ourselves in check and repenting of our words when we exclude, our actions when we exclude, and even just our heart posture of just looking at other people and being allergic to them thinking they're gross? We have to be honest about that. Okay. Because as my friend Jordan says this, I, <laughs> when we experience people we're allergic to, we with our words and our actions and our heart, cries out, cancel, cancel. And the cross says, embrace, embrace. Christianity says, welcome, welcome. Okay, the gospel frees us to welcome everybody. The gospel frees us, last thing, to welcome everybody. Listen to this. It's one of my friends as well. Thanks, Alex Watlington and Jordan Griesbeck, for your help on this sermon, if you're listening. Here's what my friend Alex says. If you don't have God's secure favor, then you will just use anyone and everybody in the secular world and in the church and by any means necessary. But what Abel understood was that God is a God of grace And if that's true, he accepts me not by my name or my status or what I achieve. If I don't bring anything to the table to be accepted, then how could I ever exclude anyone else? If God has welcomed me into his presence, if he has embraced me, not by my work, but by Jesus's work, how could I exclude anybody? That's the logic of the gospel. Putting it positively, if Jesus has welcomed me by grace, not by status or obedience or law-keeping, then I welcome everybody. I can't help but welcome everybody. 
I always love thinking about that Samaritan woman because she goes off to be a missionary. She goes to tell, you have to meet this guy who knew everything about my life. Think about who she probably rolled, rolled around with and run around in her life. She essentially was a prostitute. She's going to the highways and the byways and every nook and cranny of creation to say, you got to be welcomed by this guy because he welcomed me. She wants to welcome everybody. That's how it works. They're not threats anymore. If you're secure and you have everything that you need in Jesus Christ, if his blood really is enough, then your neighbors and your friends are not threats anymore. There are brothers and sisters that you can embrace. All right, I want to give you an example. I, this is the last thing with my community group in St. Louis. I have never experienced a small group like this small group. Some of y'all have heard me talk about this, this group before. Let me describe the people. The Old Orchard Church in St. Louis. Old church, 30 or 40 years old. And this community, this community group had been meeting for over 15 years. And they just, me and uh, a woman who worked at the seminary led it together. And we were outsiders to this group. They had been rolling together for 15 years. And they would take notes during prayer requests. And you had like the kind of pharisaical old guard of the church that founded the church and that had very you know, strong opinions about everything in the church. You know what I'm talking about. And then you also had complete social outcasts. Homeless people would come to this community group. Recovering addicts would come to this community group. Hanging by on by a thread, folks, in this community group. You also had physical handicapped folks. You had mental illness folks in this community group. You, we had someone that... That, had, um, that essentially had hearing, hearing issues that were so severe that she, when you talked to her, you had to hold a microphone in your hand, like a headset that would link up with her hearing aid because she couldn't afford to get a better one that doesn't need a microphone. And so when you would talk and give updates about your life in the community group and talk, you had to pass around a microphone. How uncomfortable, how awkward does that sound with the group that I described? How holy. Why could that group meet like that? And everyone that I described, that's the 15-year strong group, locked in. How can they do that? The only thing these folks had in common was the blood of Jesus, period. I knew. We were there for three and a half years. The only reason they welcome each other is because Jesus has welcomed them. So pass around the stupid microphone and get over how awkward it is. It's your sister. That's what they did. And they modeled that and it changed me and it changed Ivy. And these people, like in this hospitality environment spread throughout of the church, you didn't know who was going to show up in the church. I just want you to see this, is this eclectic, no matter who you believe, what you believe, no matter what you've done, stuff is not just words that I'm trying to say. I want to cultivate with y'all, and hopefully we've done that for five years, where anybody can show up with this thing. And then when you're 33 years old and you're in the church, you embrace people with the hearing aids and the pharisaical attitudes about the flowers in the church and everyone that you're allergic to. Why? Because Jesus looked at you and to embrace you, he died for you. You walked up in three days, and you are one in Christ and one one another with one another. And that is why another term 
for the body of Christ is family. Please, this week, view your relationship with God as a life of embrace. And please, look at your brothers and sisters in this room as you're leaving as brothers and sisters, because that is who they are. Let's pray.